Hello and welcome to Season of the Bit, the leftist feminist podcast that knows capitalism is corny. Today we have Zoe, Bianca, Julia, and Laura. Today we're talking about the big corn industry. Why, you might ask. It's a great question. So (laughs) (laughs) why the hell are y'all doing this? (laughs) My mom like typically asks what our episodes are on and I told her corn and she was just like, oh, (laughs) oh, uh, okay, sure. But yeah, corn consumes more land, more natural resources, and more taxpayer dollars than any other crop in the U.S. Spoiler alert, capitalism has ruined corn as it has ruined all of our lives. Uh, But here's just like some, some fast facts about corn in the U.S., So in 2019, the U.S. grew 89.7 million acres of corn, of which 81.5 million was harvested, and that yielded about $52.7 billion. So this is a huge billion-dollar industry. Me calling it big corn, it's not a joke. It's a big industry. Compared to, just like put that in context of like the other major crops in the U.S., um, Soy was about 32 billion and wheat was only a mere 8.74 billion, which kind of surprised me because like there's also so much wheat in everything. Yeah. Um, as someone who can't have gluten, I know that there's wheat in literally everything, um, but there's way more corn. And way more soy. Yeah. And way more soy, which I also am allergic to. So mm. brutal. <laughs> Um, but aside from my dietary restrictions, the majority of corn goes to create ethanol, about 40%. Um, animal feed is about 36%. And a lot of the remainder is exported. And of the very little that's left for human um, food supply, most of it goes to create high fructose corn syrup. So like a very, very small percentage is what we actually eat as like corn. Um, and an estimated 5.6 cubic Oh, million. 5.6, right? Million? Doesn't that make sense? Or 5.6 cubic miles? I would that's guess that it would be... Cubic, me- cubic miles makes Yeah, that sense. doesn't sound like enough, right? Five. Now I feel like I left out... I feel like it's 5.6 blank. Thousand? Million? Shit. Okay, miles are huge, though. I was going to so say, does cubic, that make sense? cubic, cubic mile would is a be lot like, of guess up that's in true. the air, plus over, plus down. You know what okay, I mean? No, yeah, no, it is. Yes, it is correct. I just double checked. Okay. I, I was just reading it and everything else was like in millions and billions. And I was like, five just Although sounds I'm, so small. But yeah, we never seen think the about unit it. cubic miles. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a good Because point. we don't think about miles. Yeah, I mean, that is cubic space. <laughs> yeah, no, that is huge. Okay, yeah. so it was correct. So an estimated <laughs> 5.6 cubic miles of water is used to irrigate corn each year. Corn also receives more subsidies than any other crop in the U.S. in the form of direct payment, crop insurance, and mandates to produce ethanol, which, like, maybe it sounds like these things are fine, but we're going to get into why none of this is fine. Um, Nothing is fine. (laughs) So, yeah, we'll be getting more in depth of all of this, but I just wanted to give an idea of, like, the scope of corn in the U.S. Corn lobbyists really control everything. But first, before we get more into that... (laughs) 
we have an amazing guest returning to the pod to enlighten us about all things corn. Ooh. Welcome, Angela. Yay. Hey. Hey. Welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself for anyone who rudely has not listened to the previous Ego Socialist app that you were on? Yeah. Um, one, everyone should listen to that episode. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> it's very good. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm really excited to be back. Um, I'm My name is Angela. I use they and she pronouns. Um, I'm currently situated on traditional Kaw and Pawnee lands. Um, I work in agricultural research, primarily focusing on plant pathology and perennial grains. Um, so just kind of a definition of those two terms. Um, grains are seed crops like wheat and corn um, that produce this kind of like hard seed and can be milled or kind of used as more of a staple crop. Um, and perennial versions would be plants that come back after the winter every single year. So all of the grains that we plant out, like wheat and corn need to be planted every single year. Um, soil is often left bare and there's a lot of ecological problems with that. Some of which I'll get into talking about later with corn. Um, perennial versions would solve a little bit of the problem with grain agriculture. So that's some of my, my work. Um, although I don't work directly with corn, um, a lot of the ecological problems my, of corn my work touches on, but a lot of the problems with corn agriculture is not actually tied to the plant. Um, they're tied to social systems, economic systems, um, and the way that we farm. Mm. And they, the solutions are primarily social. You love to see it. I <laughs> I feel like this is so exciting because I feel like so many people who are in environmental programs, whether it be at the graduate level or undergrad, if they have actual science involved. So if they're an environmental science program and not an environmental studies program, I feel like a lot of those programs don't really touch on the social aspect. And I love that your work really is, I mean, or at least that you, in conversation with us, you're already kind of making those connections. So that's that's really refreshing and nice to see. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just, even within like kind of sustainable ag spaces, there's often um, like kind of an ignorance about some of the social sides and that that's changing. And it really depends where you are if you're in like, predominantly white organizations, it's often focused on the science. And mm -hmm. I was listening to a, a webinar a little bit ago where the head of some very large regenerative ag organization was like talking about how they, they were just coming to terms with uh, thinking about why corn was spread across the landscape and how that might be bad. And my mind was blown that they were in sustainable ag work and had not thought of that before like the past few weeks. Yeah. It's it's really wild. Um, yeah, I was also recently on a on a webinar with my uh, undergraduate program, the department, and they were like talking about some of this re research they were doing on clean drinking water and like these springs that were around Ithaca, and uh, they like never talked on any of the social, economic, or racial uh, ramifications of their research, and it. Like, it was honestly really disappointing. And so, anyway, we could go on and on. But thank you for doing this. <laughs> it's very important. Um, 
I know <clears throat> the current reality of corn in what is now the United States is an absolute shitstorm, as Zoe and Angela have already discussed a little bit. But that wasn't always the case. Um, so, Angela, can you talk a little bit about the indigenous history of corn and its significance to indigenous folks across the Americas? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I wanted to start off this primarily anti-corn rant um, with saying that corn, the plant and the food, is actually incredibly cool. And most of the problems with it are how it's grown and for what. Um, so corn evolutionarily originated from native peoples domesticating a wild grass plant, teosinte, I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that, um, in what is now called Mexico or Guatemala. Uh, corn seeds were then passed through indigenous trade networks across thousands of years until they reached as far north as present-day Canada. Um, and corn was grown in many different ways with different companion plants across the continent. One example is the fairly common three sisters method of planting corn intercropped with winter squash and beans. Um, this indigenous planting method likely originated in Mesoamerica, but was used as far north as with the Hedenasani in the Northeast. Um, where I work, we have a small plot in partnership with an Omaha seed saver of the four sisters, which is slightly different. It's corn, bean, squash, and sunflower as an addition. Um, and this plant combination provides for a lot of different needs all at once. The beans, squash, and sunflower bring in pollinators. The beans provide nitrogen to the corn. The sunflowers can act as a windbreak. And the four crops can fill a great diversity of nutritional needs between them. Um, and at least with the Omaha, there's also a spirituality attached to the plants and the process of planting, which I, as a white person, am not qualified to explain. Um, but all of this is to say that corn can be beautiful um, is historically indigenous and very important um, and is delicious outside of the context of colonialism and capitalist agriculture. <laughs> totally. Uh, it's almost like, I. it almost is like, you know, proto uh, permaculture work too. It's just like, well, I guess it's intuitive planting, um, but we just don't do it because of the economy. Um, but I feel really proud because my my teens at the food justice organization that I worked at made a three sisters centered meal and succotash and it just warmed my heart because they stood up in front of adults and explained like specifically the history of the Haudenosaunee which is in this area um, and I just wanted to say Gen Z is everything and I love them and I will protect them forever. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you for that history too, Angela. I am also a big appreciator of corn as a plant. Um, every summer for the past few years, um, my really good friend and I have gone camping in this cornfield, which I'm now realizing around the cornfield is sunflowers, um, which I'm now realizing is because it's a pollinator and I'd never thought about that. Um, but it's very beautiful and like peaceful there. And yeah, this episode is nothing personal against corn. It is, however, very personal against the corn system and industry. Yep. Um, <laughs> I will fight big corn lobbyists after this. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I thought a good place to like get into talking about the system is, um, can you explain a little about all of the natural resources that go into growing corn? Yeah, um, so there's a lot. Um, one big one is nitrogen. So corn has really low nitrogen use efficiency, which means that it requires soil that has a lot of nitrogen to grow, but it can't actually use much of what's there. 
to put this in context, corn um, requires huge amounts of fertilizer to grow in monoculture. Um, so traditionally beans fix nitrogen into the soil and the corn can take some of that up. Um, but when it's divorced from that context, it the nitrogen needs to come from somewhere. Um, so that comes from industrial processes using the Haber-Bosch cycle to produce this fertilizer. Um, and that cycle consumes one to 2% of all the energy used in the US in a given year, mm. which is massive. Um, and then once this fertilizer is applied, very little of it is actually taken up by the corn um, and the rest will run off into rivers and streams or volatilizes into nitrous oxide, um, which is a greenhouse gas, 298 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Yeah. Wow. Um, so really, really intense on greenhouse gas emissions just from the fertilizer. Um, and then there's all the other inputs, um, pesticides and herbicides um, are a big one, which have their own slew of environmental problems and also are often um, based in fossil fuels and are very fossil fuel intensive to make. Mm. Um, and like have like endocrine disruptors. So like creates an unsafe drinking water runoff situation too. Yes, definitely. Um, bad for humans. Um, one common one, glyphosate, also known as Roundup, um, has been shown to be a carcinogen um, and is suspected in colony collapse for bees. And then neonicotinoids, which are a common class of pesticides, have really broad effects across insects and have been tied closely to decrease in numbers of native bees. And Similar to the story of DDT, there's growing evidence suggesting that they're traveling up the food chain into birds. Mm. Um, so history just repeats itself over and over with agriculture because there's really been no push at the root to change um, like herbicide and pesticide use. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so those are some of the things on the input end. And then there's also the planting and um, fertilizing and harvesting all the equipment that goes into that, the tractors and combines, which are basically entirely run on fossil fuels and built with them. And at the end of the, the on-farm process of corn, over 99% of the energy that goes into growing corn uh, comes from fossil fuels. The last roughly 0.2% comes from the farmer just sitting in the tractor or combine. Um, which is really wild. It's like a very, very low um, like energy return on investment. You have to put in massive amounts of fossil fuels to get corn. Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Real, <laughs> just a, a simple but maybe not simple question. Would you kind yeah. of feel like the fossil fuel industry and the corn industry are like inextricably linked at this point? Yes. Yes, definitely. So corn ag like takes these massive amounts of fossil fuels to grow and um, is really, really heavily dependent on things like oil subsidies. Um, so the only way that this whole system makes sense, which we'll get into also a little bit later, um, I think is through subsidies at pretty much every level. So um, using all this fossil fuel only makes sense when fossil fuel is so, so, um, coming from subsidies and all of the the costs and environmental harms that are not not counted um and corn as we'll get into a little bit later with corn ethanol also is used to like prop up and supplement the fossil fuel industry 
And so they're really, really tightly tied. And to dismantle one, you really have to dismantle the other. Well, that is a perfect segue because yeah, the next thing we want to talk about is corn subsidies. I know someone, this is like a couple of years ago, but someone I know told me that like they first began their like radicalization process when they learned about corn subsidies in like U.S. history in high school and like had their mind blown by that, um, which was like part of my install for this episode because it's just like since being told that then I got really into researching corn and the world of corn is crazy. Okay. It really is. <laughs> But yeah, can you explain a little more about um, how how corn subsidies like function? Yeah, definitely. I have to say, yeah, learning about corn was um, fairly radicalizing for me. I was just, mm. it was kind of a, a point where I was like, wow, we really do have to just like burn down everything and start over. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we really freaking do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess kind of the start of corn subsidies was with the... Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933, which is the first iteration of what is now known as the U.S. Farm Bill. Um, and it was included the first corn subsidies. Um, what that essentially allowed farmers to do was to start buying tractors and other mechanical and chemical inputs for their farms. Um, and they needed to do this to basically outcompete, outgrow people around them under this capitalist system. Um, there wasn't just a version where people were making food to make food or to feed people. Um, it's all for profit. And that is sometimes obscured in language around ag and um, our kind of American farming mythos. But um, as Sarah Tabor gets into in the ag episode, which everyone should oh definitely check out. Oh my God, you love <laughs> to see it. Okay. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for shouting out other episodes. It's so cool. Anyway, go ahead. Yes, the episode <laughs> is great. Um, and farming is a business and people don't want to recognize that, but um, it it totally is. And so the, these subsidies were essentially subsidizing this business and farmers started buying tractors. Um, and these buying one part, one thing for your farm was often kind of synergistic. So if you used to use horse-drawn equipment before you have your tractor, um, then you can't really use any of that equipment with the tractor. So then you need to get supplements for the tractor. Um, and then taking animals, livestock off of farms also left farms without manure to fertilize it. So then you need off-farm fertilizers. Um, oh and all of these things just kind of kept like playing into each other until we have the, the ad that we see today, which is um, primarily animal free on the actual corn fields themselves um, and entirely done with tractors and combines. Yeah, so one of the things um, that the subsidies allowed people to buy were fertilizers, which did initially have some benefits for farmers and rates of yield, but those declined after just 30 years of adoption. So uh, more and more fertilizers kept being applied to the fields, but um, just more and more of it was running off and it wasn't actually really making um really increasing corn yield that much on its own um and also all of these inputs work in such a way that the first adopters of this technology reap most of the benefits um they achieve a higher productivity and lower unit cost of production while selling at the same socially determined market price which is part of the results of these corn subsidies um 
and therefore they achieve a larger share of the profit. So by the time the last adopters have caught up, they don't really receive an advantage for using a better hybrid seed or a more intensive fertilizer. Um, and since we live in this terribly unequal capitalist society, those who can first access this technology will be those with existing capital, primarily wealthy white people, and those who cannot will be those that are already relatively marginalized. Um, and so this just mirrors and reinforces these existing systems of oppression. Um, and worse to consolidate land as smaller farmers are priced out of investing in these necessary inputs to compete. Um, and these larger farms can absorb these fixed costs and then buy it more land. Yeah, um, and another thing that these, these subsidies do is work into this dominant ideology of overproduction being better um, than underproduction of corn. And so this would maybe make sense if we had a system set up to store corn for if there is a crop failure um, and if we were using all of it to actually feed people, um, which we are not. Um, and we also, the US has absolutely no grain reserves. Um, so we used to have a program that would store like excess grain um, in the case of disaster and that program was entirely shut down. So in the case of like historic flooding or droughts or climate change, natural disasters, um, we really have no backup grain, which is horrifying. Yep. That's really scary. Uh, yeah. But yeah, this, this overproduction, um, it, it's tied to subsidies in the way that um, the support prices are often based on bushels, while acreage restrictions that in name are meant to reduce overproduction are in acres. So essentially, this incentivized farmers to produce more and more on the acres that they were allowed to plant of corn, um, ramping up fertilizer use and creating the system of fewer and larger farms um, and higher yields per acre um, and higher overall production. Um, so trying to squeeze as much as they can out of a piece of land without um, using like larger swaths of land per farm, um, which gives us this excessive amount of corn as Zoe was talking about of billions and billions of dollars, um, a lot of which we don't eat. Um, so it's wildly overproduced and these corn subsidies feed into that. Um, and the corn subsidies are also a form of upwards redistribution of wealth towards agribusiness. Um, so when the Farm Bill was renewed in 2008, which there is a more recent version now, but I don't have the numbers on that, um, $173.5 million was spent on lobbying for the legislation by over 1,000 companies. Um, and that, a lot of that goes into shaping um, the corn subsidies as well as um, food programs and a lot of other things that are covered in the Farm Bill, but there's clearly huge, huge money to be made off of the Farm Bill if companies are willing to drop hundreds of millions of dollars in lobbying on it. Um, so the corporations, uh, these agribusiness corporations, tend to control many aspects of the market around farming. One example is Cargill, which produces a variety of agricultural inputs and services in addition to transporting, processing, and marketing agricultural commodities, and then also providing the complementary financial services to enable cash-strapped farmers no. to afford these inputs. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 
so it's it's truly from from seed to inputs to machinery to then actually providing the loans and financial resources they just control like the whole supply chain mm -hmm. and some of the work as far as processing like does theoretically need to be done but as that power is held in only these few places um there really is no no control over that process um and huge huge profits to be made um cargill is the largest private company in the us um wow. yeah and and farmers hold on to very very little of the money from corn subsidies themselves mm. um they in 1960 for example and the situation has not gotten any better farmers kept just one percent of the profits um which is complicated there are farms that are doing much much better um and farms that are doing much much worse and farmers if they're owning the land they're farming on at least still own land which is something that many of us cannot say but these subsidies largely go towards um these very large corporations and all of the inputs they produce and then wow. lastly I'm just like, I was going to say also, like, this just sounds like a pyramid scheme. Like yeah. when you yes. were talking uh, about how the early adopters of like fertilizers and stuff get more of the benefits. And it literally is just directing it yeah. up to these huge companies. Like the it sounds. redistribution. Right. Which is just crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's really, ag is just a giant pyramid and real estate scheme. And it's so frustrating um, because there are definitely a lot of people who, who struggle to farm, um, but some of this like struggling farmers narrative, um, that gets applied very broadly. And some of that is to like, like very wealthy white farmers who are kind of like eating up land, um, and like from these corn subsidies. So one of the things that it does, um, is kind of turns the Midwest landscape into this giant real estate scheme. Um, and it's hard to talk about when you have this farming mythos, um, like the Yemen farmer and everyone's struggling and it's this like very American thing to do, mm -hmm. but it's actually a real estate scheme, which is the more American thing to do. Yeah. Um, exactly. <laughs> so a lot of farmland, most farmland is owned by very wealthy white people who live very far away from the land that they own. Um, a lot of it's rented to tenant farmers who then pass on almost all that money they make to either the agribusiness corporations or to the landowners themselves. And this includes some of that subsidy money um, that's keeping the, these people afloat. Um, tenant farmers, just like in any sort of tenant situation, have much less control over what and how they farm. Um, and don't generally have any economic reason to make long-term investments in the land, like cover cropping and such, um, because rental contracts are usually one year, one growing season. Um, and sometimes they'll farm one section of land and then rent from a different person the next year. And you can't really build out like long-term infrastructure and in, under that system. Um, these corn subsidies give this Midwestern land value and that they provide a way to make money off land where it would be a lot harder without them. Um, there's also a lot of real estate speculation in agricultural land, especially with land that could potentially be used to farm corn. Um, and that has shifted north with the recognition of climate change. And the basis of the system is fully set up to transfer wealth to those who are already wealthy. Um, 
And so a lot of farmland in Minnesota right now is like some of the highest valued as far as potential corn land. Whoa. Yeah, that actually just reminded me real quick of, Angela, you were saying about um, the narrative of like struggling farmers that shout out to the Season of the Bitch Discord yesterday, someone shared the screenshot of like, there's an article about how Joe Biden's like courting black farmers for votes. And Angela, you were like black farmers literally own less than 1% of farmland. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what is he doing? Yeah, it's so the myth is so so strong and it's so intense yeah even in like the environmental field i feel like people like romanticize farming even though they have the information and like the romanticized version of it is so minuscule of an amount of farming that happens (laughs) yeah totally yeah yeah and it's great to have this like a vision of a better agriculture, but it's so, so not the reality yeah. of the millions and millions of acres of farmland. Totally. Totally. Well, no time like the present to switch to another hellscape <laughs> of corn, <laughs> which is how it's tied to the freaking military industrial complex and how big corn plays a role in U.S. imperialism. I know you have thoughts on this, so I felt like you could take it away. But needless to say, it's massively fucked up. Yeah. So this this shows up in a lot of different aspects. Um, something historic that I find fascinating um, is that the application of pesticides is actually an outgrowth of World War II. Um, oh, my God. So corporations that produced chemical weapons after the war kind of ran out of places to sell them when the war ended. And they were kind of trying to come up with a way to stay in business and realize that these things that they were using for chemical weapons also worked well against insects. Um, So they launched this massive campaign to scare people about insects um, under the name of like the war against winged pests was the phrase that was like on billboards. Oh my um, God. Yeah. <laughs> it's like very explicitly using war and military language. Um, they converted their factories into pesticide production and um, started producing these chemicals like organophosphates that have been both used as chemical weapons and pesticides. Um, and these were applied with surplus military planes and aerosol bombs. Um, so very much an outgrowth of yeah. the military industrial complex, but it doesn't stop there. Um, <laughs> and why would it? <laughs> Sorry. <yeah. laughs> no, it's just all, it's all bad. It's all very bad folks. Um, but <laughs> so I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, um, oil subsidies are, can also kind of be viewed as an implicit subsidy for U.S. agricultural production. Um, and then wars overseas for oil, for cheap oil, is also an implicit subsidy for U.S. ag production as 20% of oil consumption in this country goes into the food system and a large portion of that is corn. Um, in addition, these farm bill subsidies are important to the U.S. securing its geopolitical domination. Um, so subsidizing com- commodity crops such as corn allow the crop to remain viable amidst large market swings and enables uh, national agricultures to be pitted against each other. Um, So keeping the price of corn low, as the U.S. does through these subsidies, 
ensures the creation of an export that can undermine markets overseas. Um, and under this logic, underproduction actually becomes more of a problem than overproduction. So you have underproduction, you can't be flooding overseas markets with corn. Um, and it would nece necessitate imports if you were to keep producing everything that we produce with corn. Um, so agricultural policy throughout 20th century centered around free market reforms for commodities on the global market. So the ability to push corn wherever we wanted. And this hurt both smaller domestic farmers, but also especially um, farmers abroad. Um, one example, uh, a tie is to the Zapatista movement who um, had their, their revolution basically um, in response to NAFTA. And one of the things that they were concerned about was um, these free market reforms around ag and how this, the US corn prices were going to undermine farmers in Mexico. Um, so it's really explicitly used as a as a political tool. Mm -hmm. Oh my God! Well, and the whole thing, yeah. I <laughs> NAFTA. I feel like I could talk for a hundred hours on how fucked up NAFTA is <laughs> <laughs> because it's just like, oh wow, there's so much. But yeah, I mean, so much of the current migrant crisis in Mexico is because of NAFTA and because of. U.S. agricultural prices being cheaper um, for the Mexican government to import rather than uh, like uh, subsidize their own farmland. And so tons of people in Mexico lost their jobs or were pushed into um, like, uh, you know, crimes of survival or whatever. I hate even saying that they are crimes, <laughs> but like into situations. Anyway, it's like a whole freaking mess and corn is at the at the center of it. <laughs> I thought that uh, we could also talk about corn as fuel, a.k.a. ethanol. Um, I know that when I was an undergrad studying environmental studies that some folks were working to like alter their car engines to be able to work on 100% biofuel. And to their credit, they mostly got their fuel like secondhand from restaurants like the typical stereotypical like dirty white hippie vibes that you know. Yeah. It's just like so many as we discussed like so many fossil fuels go into creating that that like oh, yeah. what are you doing? Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Uh, corn as fuel is like a whole extremely fucked up uh, system in the United States as well. So yep. <laughs> can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, as Zoe mentioned in the start, 40% um, of corn goes to create ethanol. Um, and this system started uh, around the peak oil energy crisis in the 1970s. Um, Corn-based ethanol production was pushed by agribusiness lobbies to um, kind of create this sense of a green fuel, so something that would be renewable um, and was going to get us past peak oil. Um, and this is uh, wildly untrue, um, but it it worked. People bought it, and there's a lot of or people, as in politicians, I suppose. Um, there's a lot of legislation to subsidize the production of biofuels, and this has only gotten worse since. Um, so these subsidies work at the crop level with the corn subsidies, and also at the machinery, refinery, and research levels of production, um, and consume between 
5.5 and 7.3 billion dollars annually um so we put a lot of money into mm. corn ethanol yeah um and it's also growing so between 1998 and 2008 u.s ethanol production grew sevenfold while the share of u.s maize production devoted to ethanol increased from five to 25 percent mm. um and right now it's 40. Um, it enjoys this reputation as oh, a God. green fuel, but the truth is far less kind. Um, it is driving an expansion of agricultural land and an $800 billion increase in agricultural land prices. Um, so a driver of pushing into places that have not been farmed before. So like digging up prairies um, and deforestation um, can be tied to this push for corn ethanol. Um, and you, the U.S. has this goal of, this federal goal of biofuels, um, which includes corn ethanol, displacing 10% of oil production. Um, if that were to happen, two-fifths of all cropland in the country would need to go towards ethanol production, um, which would displace land that we could use for food um, or that we could reforest um, and also drive deforestation. So taking into account the fossil fuels involved in each step of production. So this is the fossil fuels that goes into producing and transporting inputs, creating and running farm machinery and irrigation systems, um, transporting the maize and processing the biofuels. The margins of energy produced by these biofuels are roughly zero by some estimates and negative by many others. So we actually potentially lose energy on producing corn ethanol, even as it is pushed as a green fuel um which is just so nuts yeah it's just absolutely wild and it's like a psychosis yeah it's Truly. like i think corn radicalizes people because it it's very easy to see the contradictions of capitalist thinking in mm. it mm. that makes a lot of sense yeah. yeah it's just like it blatantly doesn't have a, a purpose that serves any human needs um right. they just make up Make up things in order to to justify the production. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's a great segue into my next question, which was sort of just like, why is that like, okay, why why do you think corn? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just why? But yeah. I guess like my question is why do you think corn became this product that's like in almost everything that we eat? Like, was there some point at which it actually kind of made agricultural sense for this to be the main crop that the U.S. was growing? Or was it always just like the corn lobby wanting to make money? Um, is it even healthy for us to be eating this much corn? Yeah, I'm just curious about like, are there any, were there ever any like good reasons for this? Um, the short answer is no. <laughs> there was not ever a really good reason. Um, I mean, historically there, there have been you know, staple crops are like a main crop that people would eat or a main few crops. Um, but that you would see that in the form of like maybe corn tortillas or wheat bread, um, not in the form of high fructose mm -hmm. corn syrup and everything. Mm -hmm. And so the fact of corn syrup is it's really an afterthought of um, creating the system where it was really economically advantageous to produce so much corn, like more corn than we eat. Um, and also a different kind of corn than we eat. So 
if you're just eating corn on the cob, you're eating sweet corn, mm -hmm. which is both a different variety and harvested at a different stage of development. Um, the corn that is used for livestock and used for um, things like cornstarch is um, a different type of corn. Um, but it's really, really great for farmers to and great for agribusiness for people to be growing this as much as possible. And then later on, they found needs for it. Um, as far as nutrition, I am not a nutritionist, um, but my very general understanding is it is not that great to be eating corn syrup all the time. Um, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Not nutritious. <laughs> it's also um, I know one thing for the corn syrup is that like because there's so much fucking corn, like corn syrup became cheaper than sugar. And that's why a lot of companies like switched because it's just cheaper because we have way too fucking much of it. Um, mm -hmm. And then in terms of I mean, that's obviously not good for you. And also, even just in terms of eating whole corn, like, the way that corn is a grain, we actually, like, don't really digest most of it. It's, like, really not a very, like, it doesn't really make sense to be such a high part of your diet. Um, like, I think it used to make sense more. Um, yeah. yeah. I think there's, <laughs> totally. like, there's definitely vitamins in it, but I think the majority, like, like, especially if you're eating corn on the cob, the kernels themselves, there's a lot of, like, insoluble fiber. So. Exactly. Yeah, like, we don't actually, we're not actually able to, like, digest yeah. a lot of the benefits Which is good it. for, like, roughage and, like, for moving things throughout your digestive system, but, yeah, if from a pure nutritional absorption standpoint. When I was first learning about, like, the big corn industry and how subsidization really works, I think the first time I got exposed to it was this documentary we watched when I was like in high school called Food Inc. Mm. It's on Netflix. It's like really, I think it was like really popular at some point. Yeah, was, I think I've seen that. Yeah, it was interesting because I was just thinking about it in the context of when we were talking about the nutritional value of corn and how corn syrup is like so overproduced that it becomes very cheap. And I think the documentary was good, but it also like, took on this angle that I found kind of questionable, which was like, oh, the reason why like um, certain like low income communities who have to rely on a lot of like uh, corn based products are off, like ex often experience health problems is because corn is so unhealthy. And like, they were like tying that to like obesity. And so I was like, okay, well, it goes back to what we were talking about maybe two episodes ago or three episodes ago, the medical racism episodes, where like people are very apt to tie obesity itself to being unhealthy. Whereas I think people were talking about two episodes ago, like you can really be healthy at any size. And so like that was something that I was like kind of thinking about as it relates to like who, you know, like eats corn and the health ramifications of it um but I was thinking like because it is because of like the subsidies that we've been discussing that like corn is so ubiquitous um and like I think it had been advertised for a while as a way to like shield farmers from unpredictable crop cycles or poor weather it's almost like uh treating corn the corn industry as like the uh stock market and like shielding it from the booms and the busts or whatever um and as angela was saying it like treats corn as a commodity like a commodity from which we like extract profit and nothing else um 
But like really all subsidization cares about is ensuring that farmers can produce enough corn and sell their crop at a certain price. And that like would be good if the farmers themselves were the ones keeping those dividends instead of those dividends going towards those who do the, or going to, instead of those dividends going to those who like control the labor and not those who do the labor as Angela was describing in like how the money is then upwardly redistributed to corporations. And another downside of overplanting and subsidization is that it like encourages short-term profit making only at the expense of longer term sustainable food production strategies like drought planning measures or like a more diverse spread of crops or just using more land to like plant fewer crops as Angela was saying earlier as well. Yeah, I would love to talk more also about those connections between big corn and healthy food access overall. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how how the corn industry relates to the lack of access to healthy food and produce in especially poor and working class neighborhoods of color. Um, can destroying our reliance on corn also help us address some of these broader issues of food access in the US? Yeah, um, yeah, so destroying our reliance on corn can definitely play a part. Um, we use so much land to grow corn as Zoe outlined in those initial figures. Um, and especially the corn that we effectively feed to our cars instead of people. Um, sometimes people in ag like to talk about the problem of growing enough food to feed people um, as if this were like the central question. Uh, tying in a notion of overpopulation to food production, um, which is totally wrong. Um, especially you can see the like lack of logic in that when you just look at corn ethanol. Um, we have so much land and plenty to feed like many, many billions of people um, using like lower input sustainable practices. Ultimately, it's a question of what we're growing and where it ends up. Um, and Currently, that's used for concentrated animal feedlot grain and corn ethanol. So shifting production away from these things would certainly help. Um, but it's also not the only issue with food apartheid. Um, that is also a kind of a distribution problem um, more than a production problem, because we do have enough food to feed people even with feeding all of this corn to our cars. Um, and the the larger things that will need to happen will also be a broader land redistribution um so land reparations and um uh, investments in community farms and more localized agriculture um especially bipoc led um localized agriculture um so that those communities can actually meet their own food needs as they can um and of course corn syrup ends up in a lot of the food that ends up in places that are termed food deserts or are victims of food apartheid. Um, but getting rid of the corn syrup wouldn't necessarily by default result in these communities having healthier foods. There's a great chance that something else that's uh, not oriented towards people's nutritional and cultural needs would just replace corn syrup. So while we need to like get rid of corn syrup being in everything, it, those issues of food justice are also tied into like really deeply tied into land reform as well. Mm. 
So um, to end, to end on a slightly more fun note, um, I can fans hear of the their pod smiles know, so much. I love a good conspiracy theory. Yes. <laughs> so I, I looked at several, and um, I, I have a couple to share. But the first, which is my favorite, um, is this theory that corn syrup is a plot dating back to the cold war and i'm going to read this specific quote from the article i read it in which says um soviets hatched a fiendish plot to make us sterile fat short-lived and stupid so we couldn't remember our missile codes moreover they drugged us with a secret contaminant in our food source that would make us less interested in acquiring new territory the sinister ingredient is now pervasive in the american diet showing up in almost everything we eat and drink it's high fructose corn syrup. Oh my oh, gosh. Yes. <laughs> the dramatic reading. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah, I also, okay, this is not exactly a conspiracy theory, but I discovered recently that almost all of like the modern fruits and vegetables that we eat are have been like so heavily bred and changed yeah. that they don't look anything like how they originally looked. And some of them are crazy. I highly recommend people Google this. Um, old watermelon in particular looks very wild and I was shocked by it. Oh, I just um, but wow. I, I was curious if it makes sense actually now, Angela, that you were talking about how corn used to be a grass because how it used to look, if you look up a picture, it kind of looks like almost like a little pea pod or a bit like a grass. But I was kind of thinking like if we could just return corn to its weird baby historical form, maybe that would like help reduce its power in some way. Mm. Yeah, I, I absolutely love this question. Um, <laughs> I, I work in uh, basically crop domestication. Um, so this process that has taken corn from a, a weird pea pod looking grass um, to what it looks like today, I work on kind of an analog of that. Um, I don't know if that's the right word, um, but a version of that with yeah, that's potential. Okay, great. I said it and I was like, I think that's something that people say about clocks. And so I wasn't really sure. <laughs> it's both. <laughs> yeah. Analog is like, it's analogous to it. And yeah. also analog is like mm-hmm. uh, an antonym for digital as well. Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> things just come out and I'm like, is that actually right? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So I work on an analog to that um, with uh, potential perennial crops, um, which means all day, I basically look at the weird baby historical forms of these future crops. Um, The answer to if this will reduce corn's power is both yes and no. So traditional folk indigenous breeding still like bred and changed plants just by um, selecting which ones they would plant year after year. And some of that, a lot of that still went to plants with bigger and better tasting seeds because turns out that's fairly universally desirable. Um, if you look at the pictures of corn as its original plant, it doesn't look very appetizing. There's like not a lot to chew on. Um, it's just very small. Um, and when you have these, these better plants, um, they might have more nutrition, they might have better taste, um, they might have more seeds. You need fewer plants for a better meal. Um, a lot of other plant breeding work goes into things like disease resistance, which is super important. You don't want 
you know, your entire crop of corn to um, be totally wiped out by some fungus. Um, things like drought tolerance and many other traits that are also really good. Um, and so this indigenous breeding did get us corn that looks more like modern corn than it does to its wild relative. However, there's a whole section of modern corn breeding that focuses on getting corn that is resistant to herbicides and pesticides, um, which allows for large applications of these chemicals. Shifting plant breeding away from this would certainly reduce corn's power or at least make the whole input thing less viable, but we will need some level of plant breeding just in order to be able to get things that people want to eat. Um, it's really hard to enjoy versus sweet corn, like a really kind of fibrous, weird grass. Um, so yes, both yes and no. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, lastly, and this is making a big, a big subject change, but when <laughs> we were planning this episode, I told Angela that we must talk about the corn dildos. And for everyone who's not familiar with a corn dildo, we can share the link to this article, which I've shared so many times. For anyone who doesn't know about this iconic <laughs> item. <laughs> if you've never heard of a corn dildo, let me tell you. The Literally don't know. The title of this article this. is Take a Bite Out of Summer with These Corn-Inspired Sex Toys. And they're just like pretty much what you'd expect. Some of them are a little more disturbing than others, um, <laughs> but they're just like dildos that look like corn. And on the one <gasps> hand, on a textural level, like I, I get it. Mm -hmm. um, no, it looks on the painful. other hand, okay, this is, <laughs> this is my conspiracy about them, right? And I've come up with this on my own. Thank you Perfect. so much. So there's obviously something going on with the corn lobby, right? right. And you know how like it's... in times where they were like really marketing like cigarettes and like razors, like there's this history of like when things like the market's dying down, they'll be like, oh, we should market to women. We're going to make it sexy. We're going to make women want it. And so that is why I think people in the corn lobby were like, corn sales are going down. We cannot have this. We need to keep increasing corn. We need to convince women we need to corn fuck dildos. corn. <laughs> Oh my god. Yes, we need people fucking more corn. Oh my god. And these yeah, are so, so intense. <laughs> I have it pulled up right now. Oh are you on the same article? The mashable it. one? Yes. Yeah. The one that like looks super like a penis I, it upsets me. But with um, like the tip? Yeah, I don't yeah, like that one. Yeah, the one that has an actual like tip and base <laughs> like, is weird. Has, has science gone too far? <laughs> it has. <laughs> But oh like God. the one, the corn textured wand massager is like kind of cute. No, oh, yeah, sure. It's the like cute. glass kind of one. I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually, but, I'm fine with the ones that are just a corn cob. The ones that like have balls that are corn <laughs> textured, that's just like not okay. Yeah, no, I agree. The ones that are actually trying to look like a penis are really weird. But yeah. the ones that are just a corn is like fine. But yeah. I have this like group chat and my friends and I discovered this article when it came out in 2017 and this did not end up happening, but we were discussing doing like one of those secret Santas where we just all had to get each other like a corn sex toy. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so if anyone wants to do that this year for the holidays i'm open to it oh my yeah. god 
<laughs> my gosh, yeah, I love this article and also shared it with a bunch of my a bunch of my my ag friends. And the predominant response was like, yeah, this was all cool and wild, but also like they're missing so many things. Like you could have corn bite guys and like corn silk tassel whips. Like I they're just not it. being inventive enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wait, Julia, this one you just sent with testicles is I so upsetting. Yeah. I'm so cursed. <laughs> I oh, hate it. What? No, that's like it's, so, it's, it's like a horrifying hybrid. Like, yeah, I just don't. I, I don't, don't like, like the human oh, plan. Oh my god! They bend it. I hate it. Like, if your balls look like that, go to a doctor. <laughs> Look, we had to talk about it. We had to talk about it. We had to. We had no choice. Okay, amazing. Uh, On that note, Angela, is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we say goodbye? Um, I mean, corn is fucked, and so is a lot of the ad system. And um, I do a lot of thinking about this, but it's also built on the thinking of a lot of other people that are primarily, like, Black and Indigenous people trying to transform ag so a few like someone I would really recommend everyone uh, reads their writing and follows them on social media is Chris Newman from Sylvan Aqua Farms Um, he does a lot of writing about uh, justice in ag Um, it's not particular to corn but um, you can learn a lot and I will say that the way out of this uh, whole big corn agriculture is not just getting rid of subsidies or like minor policy changes it is absolutely like full revolution like yes. changing who has control of the land um like land reparations to indigenous people and um also to black farmers and um recognizing that a lot of the the alternatives to this massive um system of monocropping um that a lot of the sustainable farming techniques come from like indigenous knowledge. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is Mm -hmm. the way forward in ag. So traditional ecological knowledge. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I think like, you know, I had chills when you just said full revolution. You know, when they say full revolution, <laughs> it's so it's so good. Um, thank you again for coming on and joining us this on this topic. And we'll we'll have to have you on again. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It was a Yay. great time. Yay. Yay. Bye. 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 Uh, All right. That was our episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Season of the Bee, on Instagram at Season of the Bee, and our website is seasonofthebee.com. And if you would like to give us some money, uh, which we would really appreciate, we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash seasonofthebitch. There you will get all episodes a day early on Thursdays. And we have uh, abolitionist anti-racist reading group that meets every Sunday. That is really awesome. And last but not least, you can send us an email at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. I know we're like always like no no one reads the email or we don't like receiving emails or whatever, but I will read the emails in case no one <laughs> wants to read them. But I feel like we it's all not like that to read I them. don't want emails. It's just that I feel you will get a faster response from us via DM. To that's be honest, true. that's but true. But if you want to email, that's personal choice. Yeah, we encourage respectful <laughs> slides into the DM. <laughs> Emphasis on respectful. Is that everything? 
Yeah. I don't know if you said rate, review, subscribe on all oh, the yeah. things. Yeah. We're on Spotify now and also Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud. Yeah. So make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. But as always, only if you have good things to say. <laughs> all right. Yay. <laughs> oh, Yay. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. the bitch.